Did you know that movement not only improves your physical health, but it also greatly supports your emotional health, reducing depression and anxiety? I absolutely have seen this in my own life. I'm a former professional dancer, and my passion for movement led me to create SWE Studio, an online community membership dedicated to get you moving and support your physical and emotional health. SWE Studio is centered around a fusion class combining the ancient Chinese practice of Qigong and the core strengthening practice of Pilates, a powerful and unique combination for all ages and levels of fitness. SWE Studio is extremely affordable for only $22 a month, and you can cancel at any time. Enjoy a library with over 300 classes to choose from, including Qigong, Pilates, dance, meditation, laughter, and I'm adding new content all of the time. If you missed my interview with Lisa here on Health Power, it's episode number 1167, Soul Care and Mindful Movement with Stephen Washington. Visit me at stephenwashingtonexperience.com and let's get moving. Ten years ago, the Boston Marathon bombing happened. I think it's so important to highlight people who were involved and were survivors of this tragic event. And today we've got Megan Zippin. She is here to talk about her experience, what happened, and to share some of her fantastic poetry in her book, which I absolutely love, First Light. Megan, welcome to Health Power. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. You know, I live about 30 minutes north of Boston, and I wasn't watching the marathon in all honesty. And then, of course, you hear about what happens. And I mean, it was just absolutely horrific. You have that sense of fear and anxiety, but to actually be in it is so different. If you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about your experience. Sure. And I think that you're you're spot on. There's so many things that happen in the world that we kind of see with our eyes and feel something in our body, but it is extremely different to um, experience it firsthand. And that day I was a marathon runner um, and it was a really, really gorgeous day. Anyone who's a runner knows what the perfect kind of running conditions are. And that day was, was it. Um, I was all the way um, to about mile 26.2 out of 26.6 and came around the corner to two of my friends who were waiting for me and they blew me kisses. And then they kind of mouthed the words to me, we're running to the finish. And I blew them kisses back and I said, okay. And they started running on the sidewalk to meet me. And I kept running on Boylston Street, which is where the finish line is. And um, right as I hit the finish line, the first explosion happened. And When the first one happened, it was a further distance from me. And your brain tries to make sense of things that are nonsensical. So I thought that a car backfired. I thought that maybe there was a fire in a restaurant. I, But I wasn't really nervous yet. And then very shortly thereafter, and um, about 35-ish feet from me, uh, the second explosion happened. And at that point, I had turned around to look at what happened the first time. Um, So this one was kind of like right in my face. And um, it kind of knocked me to my seat. 
and the air, if you can imagine the air being the color of antifreeze, like that neon glowing kind of look, that's kind of what the air looked like after it became extremely hot, extremely bright, um, very chaotic and confusing. Um, and ultimately for me, among the confusion was a very profound sense of, is it about to happen again? Oh. And the girls are in here because I knew they were running towards me. It must have been so incredibly confusing and just complete because it's something you've never experienced before. Like you don't even have words. Right. You don't have any sort of, um, I would imagine perhaps if there was someone in that scenario who had been in war uh, or experienced some type of, you know, horrific bombing yeah. before. Um, but, and I have not been to war, but the like, the most like comparison I could make is if you imagine looking around you um, and the people and the injuries that I was witness to um, were injuries that would most likely be likened to a, a war type oh. activity. Once it went off, the second one, and you saw this, these horrific things all around you, were you taken out quickly or slowly? Or was it even hard to tell with, you know, how time was passing? That That's a really good question about time. Um, because even today, I can't really tell you outside of um, like looking back historically at what time maybe calls came through or something. I wouldn't have been able to tell you how much time had passed between uh, moment to moment. Um, when the second bomb went off, I was kind of blown to my seat and definitely in shock, definitely confused. And two things, um, one was about the girls because I knew that they were running towards me, but the other was about my family who I didn't know where they had ended up. I didn't know if they were at the finish line or, um, so there was this known and this unknown that was kind of going back and forth in my head with a baseline of what just happened. And like I, like I mentioned, is it about to happen again? How do I get to safety? Am I safe? Um, I was not physically injured, which is kind of astounding and has been, a large part of, I think, what contributes for a lot of people to survivor's guilt, because the way that I think about it is that there was basically just one person in front of me, and that person absorbed shrapnel, metal, blast instead of me. Right. Um, and so I made my way to standing, and um, just like at almost every marathon, I think there's a medical tent just beyond the finish line for oh, yeah. taking care of traditional post-marathon issues. Um, those folks, those heroes, um, 
started running into the smoke and into the fire, which I think is always so important to highlight because in a moment when everybody wants to run away and get out, there are people out there who are willing to run in. Yes. And to look for those help. I tell my boys all the time, just like look for the helpers because they're there. Um, And so as I stood up, a woman, I don't know her name, um, in scrubs and a long uh, lab coat, I assume she was a doctor, she started kind of, she started at my neck and my shoulders and was patting my body down. And at the time I was kind of, what is going on? Like, what are you doing? And, you know, what I realized in time is that she was kind of checking for my body parts and checking, oh my gosh. making sure I was whole and then moving on to the next person. Um, I kind of started screaming that I needed to get to the girls and was walking through uh, smoke and uh, injured people. And eventually um, police and first responders started moving people like me out of the area Um And I ended up kind of sitting on the sidewalk just in shock for uh, quite some time Um, because my phone wasn't working because um, I assume just like in, you know, any type of emergency when a system is overwhelmed, you know, when everybody's calling, calls don't go through. So I did have my phone, but um, couldn't contact anyone, couldn't contact my family, Uh, was feverishly trying to call the girls' numbers and wanting them to pick up. Um, and finally through the connection of some folks that were calling my husband from outside of the city. So I imagine the lines were a little bit more open. Um, and then calling me, my husband found me on the sidewalk. Oh, wow. And I would say that was the second point in time where I thought, something really bad has happened because I saw his face looking at me and I had never seen that face on him before. Um, And I can't tell you even really right now, like, was it one of relief? Was it one of like scared sadness? But it was this look of horror. And when he found me and the way he hugged me, um, it sounds like, in the story that like you should feel a sense of relief and gratefulness. Um, I felt extremely nervous and I immediately said to him, we have to find the girls. Uh, We ended up running together about three miles to a hospital where many of the injured we heard were being taken and getting care. Um, And they had set up type of triage area in the emergency department where there was a woman with a checklist and um, of names. And so um, I gave them the two girls' names. Uh, That woman confirmed that they were there. And um, I kind of lost it at that moment. I like dropped to my knees, like it happens in movies, like people drop to their knees or the saying, it brings you to your knees. Like it brought me to my knees. And that was kind of the beginning of the next phase of this event. How are these women now? They, I, you know, will forever be grateful to the doctors and the nurses and the ICU and all of the first responders um, because they both sustained life-threatening injuries that required a lot of 
uh, care. And um, today, 10 years later, um, all of their, their bodies are different. Um, and of course, all of our spirits and hearts and outlooks are different. Um, they both live beautiful lives. They both live happy lives. And it's, it's a testament to, to them and their perseverance over this time. Right before I asked about the girls, you mentioned this was, you know, the first part. Is the anxiety, the survivor's guilt, the PTSD, the panic attacks? I had never experienced, um, I would say, any type of real resting anxiety um, before any of this. And I would say for the the first year or so after the bombing, to me, in my head, it's almost like I floated through life. I just, um, you know, a lot of my life became intertwined with their life and their recovery. Um, you know, I like to kind of give the example of if you're walking down the street and the sidewalk blows up, it's very difficult to walk down the sidewalk again. Oh, yes. That's a really good way to put it. Um, Because it's something you never expected. And now you have this historical moment and no one can say the sidewalk doesn't blow up because it did. Right. So, um, you know, this combination of anxiety, of um, being able to get to people, because I had this instance where I knew something bad had happened and I, then I didn't have access to them. Um, so like knowing where people were, knowing that I was safe, knowing that they were safe, all of these things start to kind of amalgamate into um, anxiety and the beginnings of what now, 10 years later and, you know, over the course of, of the decade, um, into pretty chronic PTSD, um, insomnia, and a very non-linear, you know, everyone says like healing is not linear. To me, it's like not even not linear. It's like circular, it's spiral, it's up, it's backwards. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes, sometimes I just, sometimes I know what might trigger um, a panic attack. Sometimes I think it sits below the level of my consciousness and it kind of happens before I have the opportunity to um, perhaps intercede if I can. Um, PTSD is a beast. And I think that it's something that I'll likely live with forever, but it's probably going to continue to look different forever as well. That year, I uh, was graduating from um, an MBA program and um, had a, jo- a job lined up for May when I graduated. The marathon happens in April. Um, I, I did graduate. I didn't end up starting that job. Um, and the plans that my husband and I had, you know, to begin a, a family, um, they changed because neither of us um, as individuals or as a relationship were capable, I think, of of taking that on. So we did not have children until, that was 2013. Um, My first son was born in October of 2017. I would say that we had a really, really strong foundation. And 
when one person goes through an experience that can't help but change their worldview and someone else goes through that same experience, but in a different way, right? Um, it takes a lot of work to kind of, to realign. Um, we did couples therapy. We did, we had an amazing couples therapist and she always used to tell us, I remember that the problem is that you care too much about each other. Like what a fortunate problem, right? <laughs> you know, I'm, yeah. so, I'm so worried about like being a, a burden to him. He's so worried about me being okay, but that doesn't lead to a, a joyful relationship. It leads to a really tenuous yeah. one. There must have been so much communication between you two and having somebody to guide you is important. Did I'm assuming you did therapy on your own and was there anything in particular that was helpful? I did. I um again it, it's it's really funny. That first year I had I did have a therapist um and I hardly have a recollection of any of the time that I spent with her, which was nearly a full year. Um I ended up seeing a second therapist for four years that um, really just, she was so patient and um, she was a behavioral therapist, um, gave me lots of, at that time, time felt like moment to moment, like I needed to keep getting to the next moment and then slowly it became minute to minute and then next it became hour to hour and day to day. And she really helped me, I think, like rebuild chunks of time. And when you have PTSD, one of the things that can be really hard is um, a sense of overwhelm and um, decision-making. And I remember really early on working with her and she gave me an assignment to go to the supermarket and just choose a vegetable. And at the time that felt too so big for me. Like you want me to go to the supermarket, you know, not like pick out something for dinner, just use one vegetable. And I was like, there are too many vegetables, you know, and here's someone who who was about to graduate with their MBA, you know, like I, I was someone and now I was someone who was so different in the same body. Um, and for the last, five and a half years, I've worked with a somatic therapist. And that I think at this point in time has been the most life-changing for me. Um, Somatic therapy really has taught me how to interrupt the patterns that I feel in my body um, and to listen to them. And when I can respond. So if I start to feel really, really hot, or if I start to feel really, really cold, or if I get like a tingly feeling somewhere, all of these are my nervous system trying to tell me something. Um, And it's taken a lot of time. um, But learning to listen to my body, which also through a practice of yoga um, has been super helpful. Um, that, that practice has been something that I will, um, both by choice and I think out of necessity, um, need to use from now until, you know, my forever. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with the huge advancements in psychedelics for PTSD. I do know about it. And, um, 
So from 2017 until um, my youngest son is now one years old, um, I have been pregnant or breastfeeding. Ah. So um, I I do take medication um, to help me kind of be the best version of myself. And I've been very fortunate to have uh, doctors who um, have always used the mantra, healthy mom, healthy baby. So um, perhaps the medications that I'm taking aren't right for everyone during pregnancy, but they have been right for me. Um, and I am extremely um, interested in the promise of psychedelics. I applied to the MAPS um, program. What is that? That is um, kind of the governing body that is doing the clinical trials for um, psychedelic medicine right now, specifically for PTSD. Um, and I did get accepted, but I was pregnant, which disqualified me at the time. So um, now that my son is a year old, it's something that I'm I'm actively looking into uh, pursuing because you're right. The research is kind of almost unbelievable. Yes. Yeah. It, it, it's really incredible. I'd be, oh, I'd be so wonderful if that was helpful to you. I think the, the percentage is something like, don't quote me, but it's about 58% of people who went through their phase three trial actually don't qualify for the diagnosis of PTSD any longer, which doesn't mean that they don't um, live life with challenges and have symptoms. But to think about that for myself um, is the first thing in a really long time that feels life-changingly hopeful. Yes, absolutely. Well, you have to keep me in, you know, keep in touch and let me know. And if you do, you've got to come back and tell us about it because I, I absolutely will. <laughs> I think it's so fabulous. I want to jump into your book. Speaking of fabulous, <laughs> in the preface of your wonderful book, First Light, you talk about a statement and the statement that you had to write. And they said, describe in your own words, the harm you suffered from the crime the defendant committed, explain the physical, emotional, financial harm you endured, include any long-term impact you foresee and describe what that means to you and your lifestyle. And it was really incredibly powerful. What was it like to write that? It was, it was hard because Although some of it, um, some of it feels so, uh, you know, of course, like when I read that statement, like, let me tell you, like, of course I have emotional change. Of course I have physical change. Of course my financial, you know, I was about to accept a job and I wasn't able to work. Um, but to actually put it down on paper and into words, it kind of really lends some impact and truth to it. And that can be hard just as an individual to be like, wow, this, re this really happened. And there really is an impact and like, damn, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and then, so what this is, that what this is, it's called a victim impact statement. And, um, during, uh, the bombers, uh, court, uh, hearing and then his sentencing, um, all of us who were um, interviewed by the FBI or part of a, a small cohort of individuals was was given the opportunity to write an impact statement that answered this question. 
Um, and the preface of my book uh, includes that statement in its entirety. And then I also um, included something that I directed direct or spoke directly to him um, because it felt like this will probably be my only chance to talk to this person who dramatically impacted my life. And uh, the the judge granted me the um, opportunity to do that as opposed to just addressing the court. Um, so that's included here as well. Is it okay if I read a little bit of that? Absolutely. This is what you said directly to him. I came here for the first two days of the trial. I came for those girls, my friends, and I watched you. You sat there blank. You never looked at any of us. And after that second day, I realized I am the one who was still alive. You are already dead. It's very, very surreal, I guess I could say, um, because in that moment, um, when you see this person who at the time, you know, I had only seen on TV, um, although it is interesting to note that um, he was brought to the same hospital that uh, my friends were in. And every day to, to walk and get to my friends, we had to walk by the ICU where his life was being saved too. And, you know, talk about PTSD, like, there's something, something there. Um, so I had never seen him before. And yet knowing what he did, I was afraid of him in that courtroom. And despite there being police officers, armed guards, what seems like a very safe container, there was no reason to me that he wouldn't, you know, jump out of the seat and just jump over at all of us, which Again, like it sounds kind of insane, but your brain goes to these places of like, wow, you were capable of that. I'm still afraid of you. Um, so I wouldn't call it uh, like an empowering experience, but it was a, um, it, it bookended an experience for me a little bit by, by speaking to him. Yes. I want to jump into the poems. It was honestly not hard to read. <laughs> I was like, I want to read this. I wanted this one. I like this one. <laughs> there was there was so much. I mean, it was just incredible. Uh, the first you. one, Swatting Flies. Old telephone booths, like the red ones on cobbled quiet streets, hold more than their fair share, offering simultaneously the gifts of containment and space. I was in one, minding my own business, when it got knocked over, crashed, busted at the seams. Stunned, I checked for my parts, pieces of my scarlet vessel cast into the distance, broken, never to be seen again. But then later in the poem, you say, inside the booth, my spirit swats. I swing, stumble, and swipe. I wish I had a tool, something less primitive than my doll-like hand, something more accurate that I could command, something faster, something to stop the buzz. What was it like writing these poems? It, it was... It was everything. <laughs> um, these poems started from uh, a collection of notes that over the course of about six or seven years in my phone at night when I couldn't sleep, I would just make notes either about something I was feeling or something I experienced or a question that I had. And it felt like a really safe place for me to put it. 
and no one, you know, was going to ask me another question about it. And then a couple of years ago, I started rereading them and then using them as, as writing prompts. Um, so some of the poems include, you know, words that I actually wrote at that space and time and place. And some of them, um, were inspired by, uh, a very difficult time or space. Um, and some I hope are, you know, indicative of things that are more joyful or, um, things that we find humor in now, um, and how we live our life now versus what we experienced in the past. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that really came through, especially the ones about your boys. Uh, before I get to those, this one as well is so powerful. They're all powerful. A man question mark. Your suit does not make you a man, nor do shiny shoes or a tie on your neck. I remember, don't you think I forget, that neck nearly killed you once. You ran from the scene, a coward, not a man, as your beloved brother's blood pooled on the floor, and then he died in the gutter. You never say sorry. Do you think of our pain? You smirk, blink, and otherwise stay still. Those handcuffs, they hold your boyish, lanky, impish frame. Where you live now, your body, your heart, your belief is the same. Glory as a martyr, peace without shame. What is it like hearing somebody else? Have you heard somebody else reading your poetry back to you? I have heard uh, a very small handful. So it um, it's a gift to me right now to hear, <laughs> to hear someone else and to hear you read it because um, – my my intention in writing this book, although some of it is very particular to my situation, um, and I do set the scene with the victim impact statement, my hope is that when people read these poems, that they can just bring a tender set of eyes and a little bit of grace to each of us in the world, because we just really don't know what we're all going through. <laughs> and so perhaps like there'll be a parent somewhere who can pick it up and say like, oh, my kiddos too. Or perhaps someone will suffer a loss or um, is experiencing grief and can pick it up and feel that feeling in their body. And just know that I felt that too, because over the course of the last 10 years, um, the books that I have read that have been the most most impactful um, are probably memoirs. And when there are blips of um, representation and blips of not feeling alone, I am eternally grateful to that person for writing. So I hope I can offer that to someone. And hearing you read it aloud to me allows me the gift of imagining other people reading reading it for themselves. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, oh, I'm such a huge fan of memoirs. My heart. I love this as well. And I'm only reading parts of them because I want people to get the book. Thank you. <laughs> as, yes. As crisp and snapped as a stale splintered stick, my heart cracked underfoot in the woods, under tension, no flexion, just a reflection echoed in my chest. Instead of agency of choice, I lost my voice, shuddered up quickly, neon smoke lit the sky. My brain, my heart, my safety ruptured, flustered, no courage to muster, my choice. 
before my power and my spirit were covered in ash, ash like the dust that fell on our shoulders as a fire raged on in and around us. The smell of hate tasted like scorched skin, scorched hair. It choked us. I mean, you just capture it so well. It's hard to read, but it should be because that's what makes it so powerful. Thank you. I, you know, there's a lot of vulnerability, I think, for any, anyone who brings a, a personal side of themselves to the world in whatever medium they so choose. Um, and a lot of the intensity of our feelings, um, if we never share them, we never know that if we're alone or not. And my hope is that the more that we kind of talk about things like this, whether it be poetically or artistically, um, the less alone we can each feel when something tragic by any definition happens in our life. Oh, yeah. Now, in Broken Friendships, you write, I often feel that I miss my chance to make things right again. The cavern between our friendship somehow became deep enough, wide enough, treacherous enough that we haven't found our way back. That was the beginning. I think you do, if you can remind me, do find your way back a bit. But what's that been like? Um, broken friendships is really a a testament to um, that very early time after an event happens when, in this case, me, but maybe others, um, when I didn't have the ability to reach out to the people who were re reaching back to the people who were reaching out to me um, and people keep calling and calling and their intention is to help. And for me at that time, the idea of having to have some sort of normal interaction felt like too much. And so I kind of, I dropped that, you know, I, it, I dropped the ball, I suppose, in um, being participatory in friendships that I had held dear for a very long time. Um, and I found myself around like the two year mark, kind of crawling around my former life and sitting down with friends with like offering really, really deep apologies. And of course, they're miraculous and graceful and they didn't know what to do. You know, nobody knows what to do when this happens. Um, but I'm not, I'm not sure that I would tell people to, to take that path that I took of what feels like, you know, one step shy of groveling to get friendships back. I think I was just so desperate to reclaim what I felt was mine. Um, and I felt so bad. Another like layer of guilt that I, I couldn't uh, respond at the time. And what I'm trying to offer the world is to, uh, you know, offer each other grace and be patient because it's not necessarily that the person doesn't want to respond. It's, it's like an actual can't. Of course. Well, I'd hope your friends, your true friends would understand that. Then you wouldn't have to be 
And they most definitely, they most definitely did. And, you know, these experiences where I would sit down with people, they would almost be like, what are you doing? But like, you don't have to do this. But in my head, I did because they had done so much and I hadn't done anything. It must have taken you a long time to realize that you didn't do anything wrong, that you, like you just said, you couldn't. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It definitely, it's, it's taken a lot of, a lot of work for me. Um, and I, I know that that is not, that I couldn't now sitting here today with you. Okay, good. I don't want you to beat yourself up. (laughs) Now this, I'm going to start getting into some wonderful poems about your boys. Uh, Dear Mama, Dear Milo. I hear you, buddy. I promise I do. I see how hard that you try. I feel you reach to make sense of this world, how you linger in moments gone by. We're missing the magic. We don't feel the sun. We hear, but listening is hard. You, sir, are gifted, are present, are real. I stand in awe of your scars. Tell us a little bit about this. So Milo is my first son. Um, I have three boys. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And Milo from a very early age, just he from the moment he was born, he offered me purpose. You know, every baby demands attention. Um, And for me, these boys of mine have been a sense of magic. They keep me present. They keep me in the moment. And Milo always has been somebody who, who stops and, you know, looks at the flowers and tells you that they're beautiful and feels the wind on his face and, you know, stops walking to do so. And he just kind of, he te- he's taught me and continues to teach me so much about slowing down and recognizing what's happening right here, right now. Um, and he maybe not, well, you know, you know, he's five and a half. He wouldn't use the word appreciate it, but um, what he's doing is appreciating it. He's feeling it. Yeah. I think that's beautiful. I love defense as well. I call you my sweet boy. You are exactly that. Easy smiles, dimples, hints of curls that frame your porcelain face and innocent eyes. He communicates all the time, I say. Yes, he's extremely expressive. No, he totally gets it. He gets the joke. He signs with the ease of a child far older. He laughs when the peekaboo pops. Yet the sweet boy happens to not speak. Don't question him, his ability, his thoughts. He's small and mighty and tough. He's listening, watching, subscribing, abiding by the social cues and blues. Uh, Percy, he's my middle guy. Um, I have two sons who are neurodivergent, but Percy has um, what's called verbal apraxia of speech. Um, And so he... um, understands everything a hundred percent. Um, you know, he's a super intelligent, historical guy. Um, but he just happens to not be able to put words together. I think as quickly as the world would request, request of him and demands of him. Um, and I always, as I'm sure, you know, lots of parents of neurodivergent kids, um, it's really important to me that he or any of my children are never dismissed because they're not offered that time. Um, Or 
you know, because he's not saying it is not at all a reflection reflection of whether or not he knows it, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, give him a book about dinosaurs. He'll teach you something. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, and I call him my sweet boy every night before he goes to bed. I say goodnight, my sweet boy, because he, he is just, um, like if kindness was embodied, like it is this child. Oh, that is so beautiful. <laughs> you know, the last one I want to read, and again, you got to get this book, First Light. It's just so moving. Four boys. And again, these are just little parts. They are not stubborn. We are not stubborn. Unless copper is stubborn for turning tannin green. Don't rub it off. Don't try and find the original that allows us all to look the same. Look for the blues and greens. Let them swirl into magical, original, one and only boys. I thought neurodivergent. Again, people want everyone to be the same and let's try to put them in a box. And why aren't they doing this? And why do they say that? And why are they quirky? And it's like, can people just be themselves? Is right. such a bad thing. <laughs> Right. Exactly. You know, like I almost hope that, you know, I'll probably leave a couple copies of these like in, you know, places that we go just to, because I want another parent to pick it up and say exactly what you're saying, you know, like, yes, yes. Yeah. It totally spoke to me. Thank you. Now, Megan, was there anything we didn't talk about that you were hoping to touch on? And I just have to say, I, it's been such an honor to get to speak with you. Thank you for sharing your story, Megan. It's really important that we talk about our traumas and be able to help other people. Thank you so much for having me. I um, there There's not like a, a big hole that I feel like we didn't speak about. I think all that I want folks to know is that... Um, you know, you're, it sounds, it sounds cliche, but like, you're, you're not alone and just keep going. Healing is not linear. It's circular. It's up and down. It's backwards. It's forward. It is a beast. And there are also, you know, little guys that can come out of it that find the rainbows and bubbles. And <laughs> uh, for me, that, has been a it, it's the greatest gift of my life to to witness my children. Um, so thank you for this opportunity. Um, my book uh, is released on the tenth anniversary date, which is um, April fifteenth, and it's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. You can please visit my website, um, meganzippin.com. Send me a note. I'd love to connect. Um, I'm on Instagram. But Lisa, this has been um, this has been a really wonderful kind of forty five minutes uh, uh, conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Me too, really, absolutely. Everybody, be sure to check out Megan Zippin and her wonderful book, First Light, and keep coming back to Health Power. And while you're here, check out Dog Eared. Also, follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Lisa Davis MPH. Rate, review, subscribe, and keep coming back. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you, and we would appreciate it if you could please rate and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy and Lisa at Lisa Davis MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time.